In the church today, though, we close out our liturgical year with the Festival of Christ the King Sunday, also known as Reign of Christ, a day in which we acknowledge Christ's reign and kingdom and seek to live into it. Christ the King Sunday, as I said, is the last day of the church year. We begin the new year next week with Advent, but it ends with Christ the King. Every year as, as a church, then, we really celebrate the story of our faith. We begin with faith, or we, sorry, we begin with hope and anticipation for the coming of our Lord as a helpless baby in a far-off manger in Bethlehem. We move through Lent and Easter, Pentecost, and so on. But we end the year with a reminder of Christ's lordship over all, and that one day his kingdom will be complete. Our lectionary readings today illustrate this theme. In our first lesson, we heard the beloved song of Zechariah, in which he prophesied that in Christ, God is fulfilling this covenant, bringing light to a people in darkness. Our second lesson today provides the image of Christ's kingdom as a sign of hope and empowerment to a church struggling with division and oppression. I invite you to listen with open hearts as we encounter God's word together from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, beginning with the 11th verse. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven or on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven by making peace through the blood of the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Becoming a parent has taught me a lot about gratitude. For one, raising children has given me a whole lot of gratitude for my parents and all they did for me. It has given me a sense of gratitude as well for our extended families and how they are helping us raise our children. Parenting, though, has also given me gratitude for our community, which very much includes you all, the church. As the saying goes, it takes a village, and we have seen this at work at WPC and beyond. Loving and caring for our children has given me a bigger picture of how we can care for one another as a community. While my understanding of gratitude has grown as a parent, I've also learned a lot about how to express this gratitude, which is something I've learned for my kids. 
See, my expression of gratitude, like most adults, is often reflective, contemplative. I'll often make a, no a point to share my thanks via an old-school handwritten note. Very fitting for a frozen, chosen, lifelong Presbyterian like myself, I know. But when my kids, or really any kid, shows gratitude for someone or something, it's anything but solemn. It's over the top, joy and thanks. There's no Emily Post formatted note, but rather a smile or expression of joy that tells you so much more. It's a joyful thanks. It's a form of gratitude not bound to any form of etiquette or social norms. I think there's much we can learn from the joyful thanks our children share and express with us. And it's this form of gratitude that Paul wanted to convey in our lesson today to Christians in the Lycus River Valley in modern-day Turkey. These verses are probably the best-known part of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. This first half of the text is sort of an opening blessing to the letter, or it's kind of the end of that blessing, rather where Christians are encouraged uh, to remain faithful and strong in the power of God. Because the Colossians, like many, are having a pretty hard time. The gospel had been preached, a community, a church was formed, but they were still living in a time of empire, of Rome, who demanded that all subjected themselves to the emperor's rule. And even further, that they viewed him as a god, but their problems weren't just with Rome. They had a problem within the walls of the church. Another group called the Gnostics had come and shared their understanding of Christ, which was dangerously at odds with the gospel they had been taught. I won't go too in-depth into Gnosticism today, but what's important to know about them is that they believed that God could not take on material form. In other words, what this meant is that the Gnostics believed that Christ could not be God. The first section conclude, or continues to encourage these Colossians to remain strong and faithful in the face of such a struggle. But even more so, he tells them to joyfully give thanks for God's strength and redemption, for allowing us to join in the inheritance of the saints of light. Paul tells these weary Colossians struggling with Gnostics and Rome to express childlike joy and gratitude. In such times when we experience struggle and hardship, perhaps Paul's advice of giving joyful thanks to God could bring us hope, direction, or peace. And it's our children who can teach us how to do such a thing. So Paul implores the Colossians to joyfully give thanks to God, but what for? As our text goes on, we get a little better picture of it. He goes on to talk about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him. He's the head of the church, the firstborn of the dead. And through Christ's death on the cross, all have been reconciled with God. This is a very high uh, writing of Christology and probably one of the best little snippets of it in the New Testament. It's likely borrowed from an early hymn of the church, but all of these statements, if you really think about them, challenge and refute the Gnostics. There's a little word in there that I think tells us a lot, though. It says, God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
That word transfer in Greek is mephisteme. In the ancient Near East, this term was almost solely used in the context of war. When one nation defeated another, the people and resources of that country were transferred to the authority of the other country, resulting into going into, uh, of one country going into exile, essentially. What's interesting is that the Christian Colossians were being oppressed by Roman authority, and they were transferred into their control. But Paul reminds them that in Christ, through the cross, we have ultimately been transferred from the powers and darkness of this world into the kingdom of God. The place, the kingdom, the reign where Christ is Lord of all. Christ has made this kingdom visible through his life, death, and resurrection, rescuing and transferring us from all that binds us in this life into his kingdom. This kingdom is taking shape already, but one day it will be complete when Christ returns and will reign eternally. So Paul encourages these Christians to joyfully give thanks for Christ's reign. It's already present, but is still yet to come to to go back to where we left last week. This is the task for us as disciples today, to joyfully give thanks for this reign. So how do we do so? By making it visible here and now. The best words, uh, best known words from this text rather are in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The word Paul uses there for image is akon in Greek from which we get icon. And usually when we think of an icon we think of something that represents something else but not the actual thing. But the word akon in Greek means that it is the full manifestation of something. It's not just a representation of it. An an akon helps make something realized, visible, that previously was not. Christ as the image of God doesn't mean that he is just a representation of God, but rather he is the full manifestation of God. He's not like God. He is God. In Christ, God is visible now in a way not experienced before. His mission as the image is to make God and God's purposes visible. Just as Christ makes God visible, as his disciples, we are called to make Christ's reign of justice, peace, and love visible through our actions and our words. Each week this fall through our series, we've explored a different aspect of what disciples do. Disciples serve God, not wealth. Disciples seek out the lost. Disciples take their faith home. Disciples wrestle with God and so on. All these things help make Christ's reign visible on earth here and now. Following Jesus and helping make his kingdom known really means seeing everything we do through the lens of Christ and our identity as children of God. Pastor Martin Thielen shared a story about a teacher he knew who was going through the process we all love of cleaning out her attic when she came upon an old wooden cross purchased years ago. While tidying up, she ended up leaving the cross laying on her desk. Eventually, she needed some room on the desk to get some work done, so she put her bills and checkbook on top of the cross. Days later, when she realized that her bills were covering the cross, it made her pause 
and think about how her faith should impact her finances. She said to herself, if my money were really under the cross of Jesus, what would I buy or not buy? How much should I give away? How much should I keep? A little later, more papers piled up, so she started to put some of her students' papers that she took home to grade on top of the cross. This made her reflect on how her faith should impact her vocation as a teacher. If her role as teacher were really seen in light of her identity as a disciple, how would she treat her students? How would she grade her, their work, prepare for a lesson, and so on? Later, she put some old pictures of family and friends on the desk on top of the cross. This made her reflect on all of her relationships. How does her identity as a child of God impact being a parent, a sibling, a friend, a neighbor? Over time, this unintentional spiritual practice helped her see every aspect of her life through the cross. Through our series this fall, we've explored a different aspect of life each week as we ask, what do disciples do? The short answer to this question and every, uh, every week has been, disciples see everything we do through the lens of Jesus. As followers of Christ, every aspect of our lives is measured, contemplated, and pursued through the love of Christ. This mindset, this attitude, this worldview allows us to boldly follow Jesus here and now in every aspect of our lives. Friends, as disciples, we joyfully give thanks for Christ's reign. As we prepare and travel to gather at tables this week with family and friends and recall all for which we are thankful, may we reflect on this crucial aspect of our lives, that we have been transferred into Christ's kingdom of grace, peace, and love. We live into and proclaim God's already and not yet present kingdom by living our faith by seeing every aspect of our lives through the love of Christ. In this way, in such a broken and hurting world, we can help make visible the loving reign of Jesus whose kingdom is and is still yet to be. May it be so. Amen.